Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called Writing the Book Teaches You How to Write It. Sarah Collins talks to me about winning the Costa First Novel Award and how her debut, The Confessions of Franny Langton, was written and discovered. Sarah has had one of those rare experiences, a whirlwind of success from the word go, including an agent who offered to be an agent without really being asked and a listing on Oprah's summer reading list. Written for adults, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone under 14. It's a gothic mystery and a love story with a fantastic main character in Franny, portrayed with a voice you'll never forget. We recorded this episode in January 2020. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm really thrilled to be talking to Sarah today. Um, it's only a few days since the Costa Awards where she went as the winner of the debut novel, novel section um, for The Confessions of Franny Langton. And um, I've been cheering Sarah along all the way. So uh, I'm so glad you got that far. <laughs> Welcome to Prepublished. Thank you so much for having me. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about is the amazing success of your debut and how busy you've been ever since then. And um, I know that one of the results of that is that you are fairly exhausted <laughs> the moment you poor thing. I'm totally exhausted. I had my Cinderella moment on Tuesday night um, going to the lovely Costa Awards ceremony all dressed up with hair and makeup done. And so this is my... I'm going to describe this as my post Cinderella moment, which is, you know, barely out of pajamas <laughs> talking to you at my kitchen table. So I'm very honoured to be here. And, and listeners, please do go and look up images of Sarah that night because she was just the best. She looked <laughs> amazing. Um, so congratulations. On Thank you. Well Thanks. deserved. Um, I first met you when you were doing a panel for unpublished writers, pre-published writers, as we now call them. And um, it was a really lovely panel. And uh, you were talking a lot about how The Confessions of Franny Langton came to be published. And I really noticed that you had a lot to say about voice and finding the voice, how important mm. it is, how difficult it is. And that's something that I teach a lot or try to. So ultimately, that's what I want to talk to you about. Um but before we do that, um, well, actually, perhaps you could start with, with just reading a little bit from Sure. Um, I like to say that you have to get the voice right straight from the first line. So I'm going to start with the first line. I'll read the opening section. Um, just to put it into context, the novel is about Franny Langton, who's a young Jamaican woman who is brought to London in the early 19th century. Um, uh, from a plantation in Jamaica. In London, she's given as a gift to a famous natural philosopher and to work as a maid in his Mayfair mansion. But while there, she falls in love with his wife, um, an enigmatic, uh, beautiful French woman. And this is not a spoiler because we know this as soon as the novel opens. The love affair ends in tragedy because both the philosopher and his wife are found murdered. And suspicion falls on Franny, who insists that she has no recollection of the night in question other than having been asleep, but that she wouldn't have killed the only person she's ever loved. So at the opening of the novel, she's being brought into the Old Bailey. It's 1826, London, and this is the start of her trial. My trial starts the way my life did a squall of elbows and shoving and spit, 
From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs, and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me, a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers, a noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I duck my head, parrot my boots, grip my hands to stop their awful trembling. It seems all of London is here, but then murder is the story this city likes best. All of them swollen into the same mood. All of them in a stir about the sensation excited by these most ferocious murders. Those were the words of the Morning Chronicle, itself in the business of harvesting that very sensation like an ink-black crop. I don't make a habit of reading what the broadsheets say about me, for newspapers are like a mirror I saw once in a fair near the Strand that stretched my reflection like a rack, gave me two heads, so I almost didn't know myself. If you've ever had the misfortune to be written about, you know what I mean. But there are turnkeys at Newgate who read them at you for sport, precious little you can do to get away. When they see I'm not moving, they shove me forward with the flats of their hands and I shiver despite the heat, fumble my way down the steps. Murderer, the word follows me. Murderer the Malata murderess. Thank you for that. I read the book as soon as we'd met and I, I just loved it. And you you described that it, it was sort of born of the, the idea of the Gothic novel. Yes. Um, and what I really love about it is that it puts um, people of colour into this Gothic environment and particularly um, some... It puts slavery into this gothic environment. It just yes. feels such a natural place, frankly, for slavery to be, um, as if, as if it's always been there somehow, as if it's part of the darkness of, of the, the dark gothic. Yeah. Um, I and agree. was what were you thinking about? Because it came out of your MA at Cambridge, didn't it? Mm-hmm. So what were you thinking about when you decided to write this story? Uh, first of all, I completely agree that the gothic is the perfect vehicle for a novel about people who had been enslaved. Actually, I think Toni Morrison sort of did that best with Beloved. You mm-hmm. know, it's the um, the idea of the ghost story and the idea of embodying these very dark things, you know, the darkest possible things that happened in human history. Um, but also, I have always loved and been drawn to Gothic novels. I fell in love with the classic early Gothic romances in particular, um, Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, which I read often, you know, during my teenage years, once a year. Jane Eyre was my entry into proper classic literature. Yes. And and also the sort of the best example of a really compelling first person narrator, Mm -hmm. I think. And the kind of anger driving the first person narrator that l- that makes her leap off the page and really come alive yeah. and that we need more of, I think, so far as women in literature are concerned. You know, the anger that's a logical response to what has happened to women through the centuries. And I was interested in exploring that in this context 
in relation to my protagonist who happens to be a black or mixed race woman in the early 19th century, but also the other woman in the novel with whom she has, you know, some fundamental things in common. And it's a kind of reminder, I think, of the power of literature to reach across circumstances that might seem extremely difficult or sorry, different Mm. and show us our common humanity in some way. But, you know, the Gothic is also... I think just a wonderful form for creating a page turner. And, you know, for me, novels aren't first and foremost about ideas. And mm-hmm. this wasn't a novel first and foremost about slavery. It, I wanted it to be an adventure story and a love story yeah. and to have that dark, delicious quality of the best Gothic novels that um, hopefully give the reader the kind of breathless anticipation I like having when I'm reading a book, you know, the feeling that you have to you have to find out how it ends and you can't put it down until you do. (laughs) Yeah, and when you do, it's so satisfying. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Um, So you were writing it as part of your creative... uh, Yes, um, the Masters, yes. Um, And then what happened? Um, It it all seems so easy that at times I'm really... Especially on a podcast geared at aspiring writers, and it's a kind of unrepresentative example of... Um, how easy it can be sometimes. I was writing, I started the novel as my master's thesis during the second year of my degree, and I had about 10,000 very rough words of it, um, very rough and very terrible words, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Not many of them survived into okay. the finished product. But at the time, I was very proud of them. And um, so I submitted them to the Lucy Cavendish Prize, which is a really wonderful competition open only to women. Sorry to the men who are listening <laughs> um, for an unpublished first time novelist in England or Wales. Mm-hmm. And um, that prize was really the beginning of everything for me. I didn't even win it, but you don't have to win it. I was shortlisted. Um, And the other marvellous thing is you don't have to have a completed novel. So you can submit up to 25,000 words or that that was the uh, requirement when I entered. And um, as a result of being shortlisted, I was invited along to meet the agent who was sitting on the judging panel, Mm -hmm. Nell Andrew, who was another um, factor, in the changing of my life and I went along to this meeting and I I remember it very clearly one of the sort of most important life-changing days I've ever had but at the time all I was thinking as I went along to this meeting was I'm finally going to see the inside of a literary agency because I was so attracted to the world of books and publishing that even that small glimpse would have been enough for me Mm -hmm. and so I very naively thought this was just going to be a feedback session on the novel but you know all of the shortlisted writers were um, being offered these sessions and I didn't at the time have a real expectation that you could get an offer of representation off the back of a shortlisting in a competition like Mm -hmm. that in particular without a finished novel so I you know there I was toddling off to the meeting I met Nell who is an amazing phenomenal and hugely intimidating woman on first meeting because she's just so fiercely intelligent and marvelous and incredibly quick to pick up on um you know the the good qualities and books but also the things that aren't working and you know I followed her into her office and we sat facing each other um she had printed out the existing paltry pages of my manuscript and the first thing she did was set them aside and you know my heart sank I thought oh no she hated it that much that she's just kind of fulfilling her contractual obligation (laughs) to go ahead with this meeting 
Um, but then, then she said almost immediately, I'd like to offer you representation. Mm. And that was the moment, really, the turning point for me. Um, you know, I, I fessed up that the novel wasn't finished. And she said that didn't matter that she would work with me on it, which she did. Mm -hmm. um, her editorial feedback was hugely helpful. And then, you know, to complete the already really annoyingly easy journey to publication, when the novel was finished, um, uh, we sent it out uh, on submission. And within a couple of days, we had the preemptive offer from Viking, uh, which I accepted. And that's not the end of the story, because then there was Oprah. Yes. That. Yeah. <laughs> Um, very shortly after publication, I think, um, here, it was selected as one of Oprah's favorite summer reads. So the magazine gave it a huge amount of publicity, but the icing on the cake of all of that was that I, um, was invited to fly into New York for a photo shoot for the magazine and, yeah. um, J. Jill, a woman's clothing line, an American woman's clothing line. And, um, you know, it really was the most surreal experience, you know, hair, makeup, um, uh, professional photographers, this marvelous studio down at the Paris in New York with um, a group of other really talented women, including Taffy Bradessa Ackner and Mary Beth Keane, Nicole Dennis Ben, Laurie Roy. I am forgetting someone, am I? I hope I'm not. Um, it was, it really was such a wonderful day. Um, one of those things you don't expect is going to come with the whole having a novel published gig. Yeah, sure. Um, and doesn't usually, to be honest. One of those moments I will remember for a very long time. So going back to voice, what is it about Franny's voice that just sings off the page to all of us? How, huh. did, you, how did you do it? How did it come to you? Um, I think the most useful thing to say about that is that it was not magic. And I say that because I struggled a lot initially. And I think my struggles were caused in part by my uninformed expectation that it was supposed to be magic, that it was supposed to mm -hmm. leap, leap off the page for me, the writer, in the same way that it leaps off the page when you read, you know, okay. a finished book. Um, I had to learn that it is a process of constructing very painstakingly um, a character who comes in tandem with the voice. You mm -hmm. can't separate one from the other. Um, uh, by a lot of forensic reading of some of the great voice-driven novels, for example, I, I reread The Color Purple, which I think is a marvelous example of, you know, the, the author's creation of a voice that had never been heard before. Distilling something really terrible into such a pure in many ways, uncomplicated um, uh, voice. Um, I read The True History of the Kelly Gang again, you know, things like that. But one of the most useful things I've come across, and I came across this after writing the novel, but I think it summarizes what went into Franny's voice for me is um, something that Grace Paley said. She said, essentially, you develop your voice using two airs. The first air is the air of your childhood, the things you were steeped in growing up. So that, you know, the way your parents spoke, the way the people who taught you spoke, the way your friends spoke, the influences of the culture around you, you kind of soak all of that in. Mm -hmm. And the second air, the one that is so dear to me is the air of English literature, the stuff you read, the stuff that makes a difference to you, the stuff that you remember and kind of sticks in some way. 
Um, and then as I was writing, I thought um, that there was a kind of third air because you are so immersed in the process of writing a book that you develop an air for that book itself. It's yes. as if yes, writing the book agree. teaches you how to write it. That's what I found. I struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. And then at some point, if it's going to work, the novel develops its own voice. And then then I can kind of ride that a bit. Yes. And it's a magical moment because when that happens, it almost pours out of you. Mm-hmm. I found that it was very difficult and, you know, painful and miserable at times getting to that moment. But when it does, um, it does feel as if the book creates its own momentum and the voice then becomes something that feels as real to you as you hope it will feel to the reader. It does yeah. not feel manufactured at that point. And it looks as though it did come by magic instantaneously. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, except I'm glad we're having this discussion. Dear listeners, it doesn't. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's painstaking. It's hard work. It's lots of reading. It's Lots of out, unglamorous work. hard work. Yes. Yeah. What I love about Franny's voice is there's, there's so much anger in there. And when you know what's happened to her, you can quite understand. But also, I mean, it's a historical novel. And I, I, there's just so much specificity to the vocabulary that she uses, the, the food that she, she discusses, that the, the way she uses food imagery. Um, I know we've talked about before. And, and clothing, obviously, so essential to the plot as well. Um, and, and I wondered whether you'd found that difficult or you'd had fun with that, that, you know, she, she has such a different frame of reference to you working in, you know, 21st century London. Yeah. <laughs> um, was, it, was it hard to, to stick within what she would have known? Uh, yes and no. I had huge fun with it. I actually give a lot of credit to one of my other um, childhood slash teenage obsessions, which was for Regency romances, both of the literary <laughs> and of the trashy variety. Yes, yes. Um, because I think by osmosis, I'd acquired a lot of um, this kind of information about how people lived during Georgian during the Georgian period and the Regency in particular. Yes. Um, you know, and so I like to say to my mom now, see, there was a point to all of that, <laughs> all of that bodice ripping reading that, <laughs> that I was doing at one point. But, but, you know, there's a serious point there, which is it's much better to have the research that way than to go out trying to find it, I think. You know, mm-hmm. the more you've already learned so well and so extensively that it's kind of buried in your subconscious, the better, because then it kind of comes out when you need it, when it corrects, to, when it connects to character and plot. Um, and presumably it's it's also it's stuff that you love because you've naturally done it without ever knowing that it it was going to yeah and you know all of those early all of those um, early 19th century novels the ones that are referenced in the novel and the ones that inspired it were also really useful for me in that in that respect but but then the rest of it like getting the voice is just graft it's part of the craft it's Mm -hmm. um it is you know my background as a lawyer helped me here because I tried to take meticulous notes I tried to keep them organized I had color-coded files you know began to look like my office in my last um, the last firm I worked at Um, but the point is again that some of these things do just require hard work and it's one of the things that frustrates me the most I think that people think writing novels just means being a kind of passive receptacle and having the story flow through you yeah but you go out and get the story and one of the things you have to do in order to do that is undertake the 
research. Um, so I did, you know, I, I consulted source material in the British Library. I went online to the old Bailey archives. I went and visited Jamaica and visited mm-hmm. a plantation there. I did walking tours to the places in London where Franny would have been. Um, but but the stuff that I used from all of that was only the stuff that I felt um, illuminated Franny or the other characters of the plot in some way. And yeah. I think... That is why it works if it works. It's this, uh, Rose Tremaine has a marvellous way of expressing it. She says research has to be reimagined before it makes its way into the text. Mm. That's when it becomes electric. Um, but it, it has to become as much part of the substrata of the novel as everything else in order for that to happen. Yes. It's not documentary. and Exactly. You're not reporting on what you found. Yeah. And also it's the tip of the iceberg of what you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, in, you know, in some ways, everything that... Um, Everything that survives into a finished novel is the tip of the iceberg, yes. that sort of Hemingway expression. To quote another goddess of <laughs> historical fiction, Hilary Mantel, she said, a novel is a triumph of deletion. And <laughs> I, like I love that, that too. That it is, the novel really gets its power as much from what you've taken out as from what you've left in. Because mm. what you've taken out, if you've done your work properly, will resonate Um in in hugely impactful ways it's you know the power of subtext really yeah I like that I, I always tell students writing is rewriting yes the, the power of deletion is yeah wonderful. writing is is deleting as well yes yeah. um and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um just the editing process um what was the difference between the manuscript that you first gave to Nell the once you'd finished and the one that got published how many iterations did it have to go through um oh. There was a significant difference, and I think the difference goes back to Delicia. Nell had a very good eye for what should come out. And this is another tip, I think. Um, sometimes it's very difficult for us to turn that kind of eye onto our own work. And it's much more useful for someone else to tell you what to cut. The thing, One of the things that really surprised me was how many various edits a book goes through before it's published. Uh, so there was... Um, an editorial discussion with Nell, my agent, before the book even went on submission. Mm. Um, What was very useful about that is that Nell has a really keen editorial eye, in particular for what should be cut, you know, for getting the flab out of the novel. So, for example, there was an entire um, section of this novel written from Madame Benham's point of view which was the very first thing Nell told me to cut. And that was, you know, that was lots of hard-won words. But I decided to think about it and to try it and see. Yeah. Um, and after I did, I realised, you know, talking about novels being a triumph of deletion, that that was exactly what the novel needed, that it needed Madame to be a slightly more enigmatic character yeah. than she had been when Absolutely. I was trying to explain her in her own words. That's the the example of the the value that a really good agent can can add to the whole mm-hmm. process. And then you know after submission, when it was picked up by the publishers, there was the usual round of um, structural and line and copy edits. And so the the book even to me, seemed to take shape as a novel only when other people had gotten their hands on it. I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of the kind of collaborative way of working Mm -hmm. that we, that we adopted on this novel. And I was very willing to listen to feedback and, um, to incorporate most of the editorial suggestions into it. There was only one I pushed back on and that was, um, 
a very early suggestion that I that I should expand on the plantation chapters and I was really worried you know here I am a black woman writing a novel about someone who happened to have been a slave but I did not want people to think oh this is another slavery story you know Mm -hmm. stereotypical steeped in suffering um, which you know unless handled properly creates nothing but stereotypes and it wasn't what I was doing at all so I was I pushed back against the idea that there had to be more plantation I had a kind of mantra you know less plantation (laughs) less plantation for goodness sake Um, but the way I handled that was a kind of little cheeky nod to the whole discussion in one of the scenes when Franny's asked by an abolitionist if they can write her story. And when she says she wants to write it herself, the person responds, well, you know, you're going to have to tell people how terrible it was. And she says, if you don't already know how terrible it was, then you've been wasting your time printing all of those pamphlets. And there's a kind of serious point there, which is... Um, that my intention wasn't to focus on the suffering, mm. that the suffering is serving different agendas, not my own, um, that a person's life story is worth so much more than that. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, what I really wanted was a protagonist who was educated and complicated and complex and angry mm. and in love. And I was determined that she wasn't going to be bogged down in... Um, the same old context that were always being presented um, for black characters in historical fiction. What came out of it to me, apart from the suffering that was there, was the 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 potential in the lives that, that you describe. And oh gosh, I've forgotten what the, the housekeeper's name Fibber. is. Fibber. Fibber. Um, particularly her life. I just I felt that you you really gave all the the. the thousands and thousands of women like her that there must have been yes. you gave them such dignity you know she she is she is the explorer she is the woman the scientist of the age yes um, she's the one whose knowledge everyone wants without giving her credit for yes, it yes and whose knowledge everyone exploits the only true science in the book really is hers as yes. far as I can see so yeah. I, I love that that came out of it as well as the broken teeth and the other things she had to put that's up with. a that's a good point and it's one of the things um that each of the women in the novel actually has in common, you know, Fibba, Franny, even Miss Bella, who's the mistress on the plantation, um, Madame, the French mistress in London, Prue, who's Franny's dear friend um, and a fellow maid at the house, and Sal. You know, they all suffer from what I've described as the agony of suppressed ambition. They've mm. been under the thumb of men who have controlled them or the households they lived in. And so they haven't been able to find an outlet for their obvious talents. Most of them are more intelligent than the men in the novel, but it's the men who call the shots. You know, Franny, the maid, is the most intelligent person in any room she's in Mm. and she knows it, Mm. but it's never going to be acknowledged. And it was it was that link, the thing that unites the woman that interested me, but also the anger that um, that they share, the anger that they express in different ways and how the expression of anger can be destructive or constructive. um, which is, you know, the sort of the, responsible for the, the events that lead to the kind of denouement, if you like, in the book. Yes. Um, and it's not, gosh, I want to say it's not black and white. And that just feels like the wrong thing to be saying in this context. But um, yeah, there are many, many shades of grey to this story and the way it's told and who's right and who's wrong. And um, As there are shades of grey in life. Yeah, exactly. Um, although I will say that I feel if there are any 
irredeemable and and uh, characters in the novel, it would be the two men, you know, Langton and Benham, who um, are appalling. And I'm often asked why is the love story between two women? And it just seemed so obvious to me that no one would fall in love with either of that yes. pair. <laughs> that, um, that it was, a, you know, it was inevitable. It wasn't something that I really thought about. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for describing all of that. Um, before we finish, I'd just love to know what you're working on now and what is post-Costa Life like? Um, post-Costa Life is tired at the moment. I, I had a, <laughs> It was a real whirlwind and a lovely whirlwind of talking about the novel again and, um, you know, thinking about um, the fact that I've received this award, which has been received by so many of my writing heroes. And so now I'm kind of adjusting to, to life after that. I have been working on adapting the novel for television because mm. it's been adapt it's been um, optioned sorry by Drama Republic who hired me to write the adaptation and I've really enjoyed that after an initial period of adjustment because it's a completely different skill yeah. to writing a novel and I think it requires something extra adapting your own novel um finding a way to approach a text that you had worked so hard to finish and thought was finished it's almost a psychological exercise in a way of you know bring taking it apart again allowing it to be messy again um which for a writer actually is a tall order because i respect that i wouldn't want to do it yeah i mean the, yeah. you know the pain and suffering of working through a messy draft to a finished product mm -hmm. is so acute that imagine having to do that you know in reverse to sort of make it messy again and invite all of that pain and suffering yeah. back into your psyche <laughs> But I did. And then once I once I got past that, I realized it was actually an opportunity to uh, look at the material with a fresh perspective. And mm -hmm. so it feels like not like a different story, but a different take on the story, which has really excited me. In between doing that, I'm also trying to finish the second novel, which is um, a love story, a, 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 a gothic love story. It's Wuthering Heights this time and not so much Jane Eyre, mm -hmm. uh, but it's set in a suicide cult. You're right. Fascinating. Okay. And it's and, and historical or not? Modern? No, much Modern. more contemporary. It's yeah. only I'm only going as far back as the 1980s, which okay. is according to Margaret Atwood's definition, which is a historical novel is a novel set in a time before the writer came to consciousness. Oh, yes. It's not yes. historical from my point of view. Yeah. So. Wow. I look forward to seeing that. Yes. Well, I look forward to finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that in mind, I'm going to let you get back to recovering from your amazing last um, six or nine months. Um, so thank you so much for talking to me for the podcast. It's been really lovely to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at PrePubPodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.